Hi, and welcome to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. My name is Adela, and I'm the founder of PBC. Today, our guest is Tim O'Brien, the creator behind the Shaping Opinion podcast. We listened to an episode of Shaping Opinion as part of our September listening list on freedom of speech, which you can find at podcastbrunchclub.com slash freedom of speech, all one word. The episode we listened to featured an interview with Jean Polisinski, the president of the Freedom Forum Institute, and a discussion about how the First Amendment shaped America. Welcome to the PBC podcast, Tim. Thanks, Adela. It's great to be with you. So I wanted to start with a little bit of a background about what Shaping Opinion is about. I know our our podcast Brunch Club community has listened to one episode, but just take a step back and tell us a little bit about the entire show. Sure, sure. Uh, well, actually, if I take a step back, you could say the mission of the podcast is to, uh, one of the things you, you have to decide is what kind of podcast will this be, a how-to or whatever. For me, it's uh, it's to inform and entertain as opposed to as opposed to do a how-to podcast. And what it's what it is, the tagline of the show is a good description, I, I still believe. And it's we say that it's about people, events, and things that have shaped the way we think. And obviously the title shaping opinion, so it goes with that. And then I often have to tell people that it sits at the intersection of communication, history, and culture, because that's that gets at a lot of the content. Because if you actually listen to some of my episodes, you might wonder, what does that have to do with shaping opinion? But it's a little bit more subtle than that. Uh, so I, I guess for starters, let's talk about what it's not about. Uh, it's not a PR podcast. It's not one of those podcasts that says, here's how you uh, distribute a press release, or here's how you persuade the public to think one way or the other. It's more about taking a deep dive into things, intentional or not. Like, uh, the things that are have a major influence on how we see the world Sometimes it could be a historical event like 9-11. And 9-11 is, is a subject that I've covered three times in three separate episodes. And each one was a first-person story from that day. So I, I've done three episodes on that. And that's kind of a good example that will tell you everything you need to know about the podcast. Because without hitting you over the head, these events did change the way we think about certain things in the world. And all I had to do was ask these people to tell their first person story. And by doing that, that made a bigger impact than if I had tried to do a historical retelling of, of 9-11 in these areas. So that's kind of what I try to do is get a first person story if I can or get a, a, a full story of whatever the subject is. And in the end, I think you'll have a good feeling for why that did shape the way we think. And other times it could be a, it could be something telling their own story, like Mark Summers. He was the host of a of a Nickelodeon show back in the '90s called Double Dare, and he was famous for introducing the slime, the the Nickelodeon slime, to everybody. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole generation that grew up around that. So that actually shaped a childhood for a lot of people for a generation. And all I did was ask Mark to tell us the story of his time mainly with that show, but also his career. So that's kind of how I look at the show is, is can I get someone to tell me their first person story if I can, or let's talk about a big issue, like a historical issue, maybe like Apollo 11 or Gettysburg. And these things did shape the way we think, even if we realize it or not. So as I said, I try to make it a point not to hit the listener over the head with a lesson or a takeaway, let them come away with whatever takeaways that they want. And really, for me, then the key is to get a good guest and have a good story, a good subject, and try to let the rest take care of itself. 
That's interesting. I mean, I'm going to ask you my next question for you is about your background and why you decided to start the show. Um, and I, I know a little bit about your background. And I'd love to talk a little bit about how your background kind of weaves itself into your show. Yeah, it actually, yeah, it, it sounds like Ted Baxter on the Mary Tyler Moore show. It all started back in, well, actually, it, but it did for me. It started in college. I, I worked for the college radio station, and it happened to be an NPR affiliate. And so I, I worked for my college radio station, and I always remember the first money that I made as, as a communications person. It's a story, I think, worth retelling. Uh, they, I would run out and go wherever there was news and try to cover things for the radio station and learn how to be this broadcast journalist. So the presidential campaign was going on that year. This, this will tell you how old I am, too. It was George H.W. Bush running against Ronald Reagan in the primary in 1980. And, uh, and those two were speaking at a dinner. So I had the chance to go out and report on that. And so I, I did this. Uh, I, I sat at this banquet table across from the press corps, the, the traveling press corps that was there. And one of the senior level PR people looked bored as all get out. He, he was playing with his coffee spoon. And I thought, well, he's heard these speeches all 10 or 15 times. So I'm not getting any news yet. And then George Bush said something that made this guy sitting across from me drop his spoon and look up. And I thought, okay, we have news. And I had my tape recorder going. And what it was, was George Bush said, I don't know if I'm going to win this fall, but whoever wins, I'm going to support. If it's Ronald Reagan, I'll support him. It was something to that effect. And I thought, okay, this was the first crack in the, in the Bush campaign that Reagan might win. So when the dinner was over, uh, everybody ran down to talk to Reagan and there was a crowd there and I ran the other way and I, I caught up with George Bush. I was the first one there and I, there were, he was surrounded by secret service, but I remember sticking a microphone in his face and saying, you know, are you conceding the election or something to, to Ronald Reagan? And, and obviously he didn't say that, but he, but he repeated what he repeated, what he said from the stage. And I used that soundbite, submitted it. It was on morning edition the next morning. I think I got paid $40 for that. And uh, I remember thinking, this is great. I'm now an, a professional, a professional communicator. <laughs> and, uh, but but I, I did that. I was hooked after that. I worked for uh, another radio station after that, KDK Radio in Pittsburgh, one of the first radio stations. And, uh, and then I worked there for a few years, then transitioned into advertising and then transitioned into public relations. And I've been in public relations uh, for about 35 years. So it's been mostly that. But in my work in public relations, I've always worked across media, radio, television, newspapers, internet, digital, social media, whatever the, whatever the platform is, I've worked in it. And podcasting came along about, I don't, I don't know when I really got into it, but I, I picked up on it as soon as it came out. But I didn't start becoming a regular listener until uh, a few years later, probably mainly just because I, I didn't have a, a, an iPod. Uh, and I wasn't into Apple products, but I, I started listening to podcasts and I was always an NPR fan. So I listened to the NPR shows like Fresh Air and This American Life and then true crime shows on podcasts and quirky offbeat shows and, and self-help and business shows. And a lot of the shows that you've reviewed and, and listened to on, on your podcast, Brunch Club, I've listened to them and, and some of them I got hooked on. And I started thinking, 
I love to do a podcast. I love to get back to, to doing radio for myself. And, but I have this public, public relations business that I run and I do blogs and I do, and I do all kinds of writing about how to do public relations. And I thought, I don't want to do a repeat of that. And I started, I started in, in, in the course of that somewhere along the line, I was looking for a certain type of, of podcast that I couldn't find. And that's when the idea started to take shape. I thought, there's this podcast that's not out there that I'm looking for. I should probably put it together. And it, 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 it came, it took shape for me in the form of, I want to do interviews. I want to do the kind of interviews that I hear on NPR, but I want to tell stories like I hear on true crime, but I'm a PR guy. I'm a public, I need to tell stories that aren't true crime, but might have a communications hook to them some way. And so I started playing around with that idea and I, I started playing around with names and then I did a GoDaddy search of, of uh, URLs and saw that Shaping Opinion was available. And that was sort of the light bulb moment for me because I thought, I have to do something with that name. I have to work around that name and, and yet not keep it so narrow that only 10 PR people in Pittsburgh are going to listen to it. So, uh, so it, it, it evolved that way. I, I thought it was going to be a little different at first than it turned out to be. Uh, I thought it would be a, a, a lot more case studies about communications that people would want to hear about. So one of my first two-part episodes was about the Tylenol recall, and I thought I would do a lot more episodes like that. But as I experimented, and that's what everybody tells me they do in podcasting, it, it, started, it started to find its own it find its own. It's not a. It's not really far off from what I envisioned, but it's more now stories, st stories from people who care about these subjects, and these subjects are things that, that that is the main criteria. They had some impact on our lives. Yeah, I mean that's that's really. So when you answered the question about what shaping opinion is about, and you went into sort of like these first person stories and how first person stories can tell like a bigger picture about how how opinions are shaped or culture is shaped or something is shaped. Um, you know, I immediately thought of your communications background and your communications and PR work because, you know, I'm also in communications. We talked a little bit about it before we hit record. And and they always say, you know, telling the story of one person can be more compelling than telling the story of, you know, a million people. So, you know, when you're talking about, and I know you're working with some universities and with data, you know, you're telling us, I don't know, you know, I work in public health, so 63% of the population, you know, has diabetes, I don't know, whatever, 20% have diabetes, is not as compelling as saying like, this one person has diabetes, and this is their life. This is what they go through every day on a day to day basis. And really like digging into the nitty gritty can really be more and then sort of zooming back out and saying, and just so you know, 20% of the population experiences this exact scenario every single day. And, you know, that is more compelling than just being like, out of a million people, you know, this many experience this thing. So well, that's, that's so true. I, I this, this podcast, a, technically, it's a, it's a, uh, you could call it a, uh, a branded podcast for my own business, but it's, it's not so literally tied to my business. But to your point, to, to the point you just made, I, and I love the fact that you said that, uh, what I, what I tell the people that I run into in business and, and people, my clients who listen and, and people that I I've gotten to know in my business who listen, 
I tell them, really, every episode for me is what you just described. It's like my first meeting with a client. It might be like your first meeting with an expert that you have to deal with through your communications work. And you want them to tell you everything they can about whatever it is you want to talk to them about. They do a download to you. And you it, it's the sky's the limit on what you talk about. But at the end of that hour that you spend with them, you want to know, you want to have a picture of what the real underlying issues are that you're going to be dealing with. And to your other point about that, that zooming back out and having that 20% number, then you can relate it to people. Then after you tell the story, then you can tell them things that they can relate to. I, I That is such a good point that you made. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I always think about that. You know, I, I'm also a big fan of, of podcasts, obviously, right? I started Podcast Brunch Club, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, even in my, in my day-to-day job at Northwestern and public health, you know, like, how do we tell the stories of public health issues from a first person perspective. You know, I haven't really cracked that not yet, but it's something that I'm really interested in exploring, you know, sort of more professionally. You know, we talk about things like, and I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but I hope you'll bear with me. Um, you know, one of the things that we work on is something like, or is around, um, you know, organ donation and uh, live and dead donor, right? Or organ donation. And they talk about the logistics that's involved. And, you know, people just everyday regular people think of organ donation. Okay, like, okay, organ donation. It's pretty simple. Somebody donates their organ and they sat or they sign the back of their of their of their license and it's done, right? Either they donate it if they if they die prematurely or they, you know, if you have two of them, you can donate one of them, you know, this kind of thing. But What's way more complicated and and so interesting is sort of the backstory of how does the logist how do the logistics work on on like an organ donation, you know there's there's a there's a decay period and you know oftentimes in the way that it's currently set up or in these sort of really like targeted regional zones because you can't you know you don't have that much time to get an organ from one place to the other and it's this big like logistical nightmare of you know and and what happens surprisingly and tragically is that there's a certain percentage of organs that are perfectly viable that never ever end up being donated even though they were you know they were donated by the person they don't end up in the ho- in a, in another person because because of this logistical like thing that happens and and there that there's a sad. lot of effort and how do you tell that story you know like how do you tell the story of a you know, I almost want to tell the, it from like a first person perspective from the, the perspective of the organ, you know, like, <laughs> I think it'd be really compelling. But yeah, I think I think storytelling is such a great way. And, and I think anybody that listens to podcasts will agree that storytelling is such a great way to learn about the, the larger world. You know. Oh, it is. It is. Well, that story you just told, I interviewed a, a life flight helicopter pilot, John Chamberlain. He was not a pilot. He was an EMT. And uh, and he told stories not quite the same as that. But I, I, I could hear as you were telling that story, I could almost hear the frustration that someone might tell us if they were one of those those traveling technicians that almost made it. And for some reasons, it didn't. And that would almost be the beginning of the story. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And how do you yeah. fix it? You know, there are these researchers right. that are brilliant and they're all, you know, engineers and big data people and they're trying to fix the problem and they're, and they're, you know, they're making, they're making strides, but so far that it's still a, a big problem. I feel like the percentage is something like 20% of, wow. of organs that are perfectly viable, just never 
they just die in transit or whatever. So it's tragic. Um, well, let's get back to uh, to your show and your episode in particular. So we listened to an episode that was titled The First Amendment, 45 Words That Shaped America. And in that inter- in that episode, you interviewed Jean Polisinski. And at the very beginning of the episode, you mentioned that you've wanted to cover the First Amendment for a while. And so my question is, I know that you're, I think, 142 episodes in. And this episode, I think you mentioned was like 134. So right. What, you know, what was it about July 2020? Because that's when this one came out. That was like the the nail in the coffin. You needed to get this this First Amendment went out. And, you know, what was the thinking behind that? Right. I I knew there were certain subjects that I did want to cover and that I, had, I, I have covered and some that are still on my list that I haven't covered. But uh, but that was one of them, some kind of First Amendment. But it goes back to what we just talked about. I didn't want to just do a uh, an academic discussion of the First Amendment. I wanted some kind of way that people could. T- it was timely and relatable. And when we hit 2020 and we started to have the lockdowns and people weren't allowed to go to church. I think that was the first one. People were being denied the opportunity to go to church and they were being denied other opportunities. And then over the course of the year, there were then obviously it's a political year. There were debates and there was the internet and there were all sorts of things happening separate from and sometimes related to the pandemic. And then the protests hit in June. And then there, so you had people on lockdown and yet you had people in the streets and you had people social distancing and you had people not social distancing. You had people not being allowed to go to church and people who were uh, seemingly allowed to go out and and do everything that the people who wanted to go to church couldn't do. And then you had the speech issues. Then you have uh, the, the the big internet platforms kind of taking on taking down posts or videos from people for for subject uh, for value judgment reasons. And then you started to have like we had uh, a, a, an editorial person at the New York Times resign. Uh, for editorial reasons, uh, Barry Weiss. All these things kind of rose to a head with monuments coming down. And uh, and all these different types of issues pointed to the First Amendment. And I didn't want to just take one of those. So I reached out to Gene Polosinski, and he's with the Freedom Forum. And that's a very bipartisan organization started by the founder of the USA Today. And just really wanted to dig into it and run some of these questions that I just mentioned to you by him and find out what he thought about it because he spends his career studying the First Amendment and its impact on the world. And I I have spent my life dealing with the First Amendment first in the media and then in the communications profession. So I have my own perspectives and I wanted to, I wanted to really dig into it with him. And it, and it was really great that I had the chance to do that. And, and it happens to be now one of the more popular episodes we did. So I'm really glad I did it. And that, that would be the reason I did it in 2020. Yeah. I mean, those all <laughs> did happen a very and very quick succession and they're, yeah, I mean, this is just, these are unprecedented times. So, um, one of the things that you mentioned, it seems like it started from uh, this this uh, restriction for people to go to church. And one of the things that you talked about with Gene in your episode was the freedom from religion movement. Um, 
I don't think you got too in-depth about it, and I know that you're not a subject matter expert on it, but I think you probably know way more than I do and probably more than most of our listeners on the the movement. So can you give us a little bit more information about that? Sure. I, it's really at the crux of the First Amendment debate when we, when religion is at the center of it, because there there are two sides. Obviously, there's there's the wording of the of the First Amendment, which is freedom of religion, and constitutional law experts will tell you that it it really has to do with the practice of religion and government uh, a state sponsored religion. So that's that. Uh, and Gene did talk about that. But then there's this there's this mindset that has moved up into our our pop culture now, that they've almost replaced freedom of religion, in other words, freedom to practice religion as you see fit, to uh, the society has to have the freedom to not have religion. So you that you have the people who, and there are, there is a group called Freedom From Religion, and so they're the group that usually is out to, uh, to take away the prayer in public schools, uh, take away uh, religious type of statues from public property. And they do have a very focused effort when they, they, they do focus on public properties. They, they don't seem to take issue with private property issues. But, uh, but, the, but people in the media and other people, when they start to talk about freedom of religion, they almost conflate the two concepts, and they are two very different concepts. One is freedom of religion. In other words, I, I shouldn't have to worry about being faithful in public and being faithful in most places that I go, and I shouldn't have to have my practice of religion infringed upon. And then there are other people that will say, no, your practice of religion infringes on my right to have freedom from religion. And that's the battle. That's the battle that I talked to Gene about. The other thing that you talked a little bit about in the episode was the the case, the Supreme Court case um, with Westboro Baptist Church. And we listened to an entire episode about that case. Uh, I think the the second episode in the list was from Unprecedented, and it was called Middle Finger to God. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the case itself, whether you feel like the, the Supreme Court made the right decision. That's that's good. I, I did. I had the chance to listen uh, to, to that episode that you're talking about. I was somewhat familiar with the case. We did mention it in passing on our podcast. Uh, and it, it's probably a good example of the difference between how we might feel personally and how we might feel about the need for the First Amendment. And and because you, you, and, and a more a more broad example would be the flag. You know, people say, well, I defend your right to burn the flag. That's what a lot of soldiers will say. And because they do believe in the First Amendment and they do, even though they don't like seeing people burn the flag, they will defend your right to do that. And that Westboro Baptist Church Supreme Court ruling was along those lines. Uh, You have people doing what I would have to think the vast majority of people would not agree with. Uh, And and a lot of people would react very um, emotionally to what they do. Yet at the same time, you know, the Supreme Court did not restrict, really they did not put any major restrictions on the this group from the Westboro Baptist Church to do what they do. Uh, and I do I agree with that? Yes, I do. For the same reason that the Supreme Court uh, doesn't uh, restrict, it doesn't penalize people for ban- burning the American flag. I disagree with both. I, I, I don't like to see the flag burned or disrespected myself, but 
Do I, do I believe in that person's right to disrespect the flag? Yes, I do, uh, because I do believe in the First Amendment. And I think, and the reason I think that is because there are times that I want to say things that may not be popular to other people, pro- hopefully not as severe <laughs> as with the Westboro Baptist Church. I would hope that nothing I do in my life uh, goes uh, so far over the edge as they do. Uh, but there may be times that, that I do something either for myself or with a, an organization that I'm working with that others may not agree with. And I would hope that I would at least have the right to, to communicate that message without the government restricting that right. And that, so that, that is where I do, I do, in the Supreme Court, I believe it was, uh, was it an eight to one ruling? I, I think the Supreme Court was a very, uh, a very um, majority ruling on that. So, uh, so I, I would have to agree with that. Mm-hmm. I tend to agree. Um, and then just in terms of like tech companies and, um, their sort of how they play into freedom of speech, I guess my question for you is, um, how do you think that tech companies should handle freedom of speech issues, especially as it relates to disinformation? So like, if you were the the CEO of Twitter, would you just kind of be very hands off or would you, is there a middle ground? What do you think? That's a subject I've, I've, uh, I've gotten into quite a bit lately, not just on my podcast, but in other ways. And I, I, I have some strong opinions on that and, and they, they're not all one way, but they're still strong. And I, I think that when you look at Twitter, Google, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram to a lesser extent, these are all up until now have been considered agnostic platforms they don't editorialize, you know, uh, so they, they have this platform. And unless you commit a crime uh, on there, they would let you pretty much do what you do. And if there was any penalty to you, in other words, if you libeled somebody or slandered them, that was not going to be on Twitter for allowing that to happen or Facebook for allowing that to happen because they were agnostic. They were just a platform. They were the, they were the digital equ- equivalent to a plumbing system or an electrical grid for communication. Uh, now, more recently, they've become more activist in their content management. They, it, they will look at content and they will decide whether they think it's harmful or not. Uh, and sometimes that content is at best offensive. Uh, it, it may not be hate speech. It may not be anything criminal or illegal. But yet Twitter will take certain people down. They will take certain posts down. YouTube will take certain videos down. And there are a lot of people that are objecting to this now. And it's actually becoming one of those things that, uh, that, that Washington is taking note of. So do, do I think that, that, that they should be able to do that? I, they're private companies. They have a right to do that. Uh, just the same as the New York Times or the Washington Post can control their, their content. However, we know that the New York Times has editors and they have a process and they have a sometimes they have a letter to the editor section where there's give and take. So they have a built in public accountability mechanism that goes back to the 1800s newspapers. And then all media tends to do that. Big digital, Google, Twitter, they've had it both ways. They have not had to be accountable for the decisions they make. They have not had that transparency so really what we have now is you don't know who's making the decisions as to what content comes through and what content does not come through. You don't know how those algorithms are, are created when it's not a human being. And 
you, you're basically trusting these companies to control the national conversation in a lot of ways. They're not monopolies, so that's that's another thing that's important to point out. They aren't monopolies, so the, it's not like I'm saying government should come in and control them. I don't I don't agree with that either, but I but I I do think that there probably is now this evolutionary maturation process coming in, and I do think that that the free reign that the big digital companies have had in terms of having it both ways. I think that's those days are numbered because of what they're doing now. I don't think they should be able to, uh, if they're going to claim agnosticism in terms of their content, I don't think they should be uh, taking things down. And if they are going to start doing this uh, using, I know they Facebook was famous for using fact checkers, and they will tell you who their fact checkers are. But I, I think you, you have to start looking at, at that process and there has to be more transparency in how the content is removed. And I think it's the same thing there. I think if face, I, I honestly think if I was a public relations person for Facebook or Twitter and we really did care what the public felt, I think what I would tell them is you need to start showing people that you're willing to tolerate certain points of view that people feel that you're not willing to tolerate right now. You need to demonstrate that because it seems to be quite arbitrary right now. And, and, uh, and th that's probably not going to last at, at some point there will be, um, there will either be some self-policing going on or more than likely there will be legal cases and things like that that will come in or competition or the marketplace will take over and somebody else will come over and create a better Twitter or create a better Facebook. That's a big, that's a big challenge for somebody, but these aren't monopolies. So there's still room for that. Yeah. I mean, we, we've seen, seen, um, accounts that are banned from Twitter and YouTube going to, you know, some of these more underground channels anyway, you know, 4chan and 8chan and, um, and there are other places for them to go, but I guess they. I also think about it from a perspective of like they're a they're a for profit company, and they have customers. Sort of. I mean, I know they have customers, but like I guess I'm not really sure who the customer is. Uh, the customers are the advertisers, but the advertisers are there because the people are there. And if and if people get too fed up with Twitter for like allowing, you know, content that is not fact checked or or really offensive or something and people start you know deciding to drop off of twitter then the advertisers leave too so there is like a marketplace reason to think about about potentially doing that or not doing that i mean there it's there's you know it's two uh two sides of the same coin yeah i don't know i mean it's it's hard for me to imagine i mean an open platform i think social media was also seen as the sort of uh you know, back in the day when they first started, it was seen as the antidote to, you know, mainstream media that, you know, was also sort of controlled by different businesses and advertisers and stuff. And the idea was like, oh, now anybody can have a blog and, you know, it's going to level the playing field and, and all that. And, and maybe it did for a little bit, but that went away very quickly. So... No, that did happen. That did happen. I, I, I heard another guy wrote a book recently and he talked about uh, the, the Drudge Report. That was mm. one of those breakthrough blogs and how that basically has seen better days because of social media, because people no longer need to go to an aggregator of a blog because all they need to do is click on Twitter and get the same get the same content. 
and to your point, uh, yes, these are businesses. You know, Twitter, Facebook, they sell data mainly. Uh, and so their their big customers are data consumers, and uh, and advertising. Google, I think, is the number one advertising uh, platform now. So uh, so ad agencies spend a lot of money advertising through Google and through Facebook. So these they do make their money, and they are private businesses, and they do have a right to control whatever's on on their channels. But I think for because they are so dominant. The people that kind of sign away their their um, their content when they sign up for these services, they don't expect to be treated um, selectively, and uh, and that that's been the the, the more recent debate uh, this year. So we'll see how it goes, but I it never ends. I I think the the thing those of us who who've been on social media since the beginning, we've had the chance to experience the freedom of social media, and whether it's government restricting it or it's the social media channels themselves kind of restricting it, no one likes to be restricted. And I think that's what's really going on now. It's it's a maturation phase. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to take a step back and talk a bit more about the Shaping Opinion podcast. Um, and if if somebody's coming to shape opi- Shaping Opinion, having only have listened to either this episode or no episodes, what episode would you point new new listeners to? I, uh, I I thought about that uh, that question, and there are actually two episodes for two different reasons. I don't know what other what other podcasters say to you, but there was one episode I did this year. It was about anatomy of a song, and the song was "Play That Funky Music," and I interviewed the guy that wrote it, Rob Parisi, and. It, you know, I didn't expect much. I, I, I thought it was a fun song, and uh, and I thought I'd talk to him and just just do an anatomy of a song. And he told me the whole story of that song, and in the process, he talked about disco and he talked about the '70s and what it's like to be a creator. And um, and I, I just I just had an enjoyable conversation with him. And that episode is one of my all-time uh, most listened to episodes. And I don't think it's because a lot of people probably listen because they like that song and it was part of their life. And you don't have to be someone from the 70s to like that song. And that, that's actually one of the big things we talked about was there are five-year-olds today that know that song. So it's, it's spanned the generations. And he just signed a deal with, with Marvell to have it in a movie. Uh, so it, it, it's still got life. And he's still living off of that song, even though it's been over 40 years. So I, we had a great conversation. I, I had a lot of fun talking to him. And I guess that came through because that episode uh, has a lot of listens. Now, if you ask me, what's the, my favorite episode to do to, to the process for doing it? And then it was another music episode. And it was, uh, I, I was down in Tennessee last year and I interviewed uh, the operator of the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, Tennessee. And for anyone that knows anything about the Bluebird Cafe or don't, uh, I'll tell you, it, it was the place where Garth Brooks and Taylor Swift got discovered. And it's a small place. I, it, it's, it's, it only seats 70 people, and that's right on top of each other. And it's a very intimate place, and, and, this, and these are all songwriters typically, and they will play their songs for the audience. So you'll have four songwriters sitting together in the middle, and everybody's sitting around them. And uh, I interviewed the woman that operates that, who's been there since the beginning, and we just told the story of the bluebird, and we did it 
right there in the middle of the bluebird <laughs> where all these where taylor swift and and garth brooks and and all these other mostly country singers but not completely country singers got the, got their start and uh and it was just sort of being there that was so fun to do to do the interview that way it wasn't the most downloaded episode or the most listened to i was happy with the way it turned out i and i just truly enjoyed the atmosphere of doing the interview uh but in terms of of the episode itself and the one that the the listeners responded to the most it was probably the the play the funky music one cool i will put links to both of those in the show notes um and then i'm going to ask you the question i ask every guest at the end of our episodes um because podcast Brush club is a community of avid podcast listeners i always like to get a podcast recommendation from our guests so what have you got for us? There's one that I started as a listener, and then I've gotten to know the podcaster and the name of it. And it's it's another one of those. That I think your listeners would like this because it's not one that you see, uh, you know, from the big podcast companies. This is another independent podcast, and it's called Within the Realm with Steve Garrett. And it's uh, it's it's a very it's very folksy sound, and he does interviews with people. Uh, he's based in the central part of the country, the the, the Oklahoma, Missouri area, uh, uh, and he does all these interviews with people that are just so they just take you back. They're they're current stories about people, but sometimes they're historical. But they take you back to just a feeling of of Middle America, and 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 the people that he talks to. They, they could be someone that you know. They sound like your brother or your sister, your cousin or your neighbor. And and Steve really makes it feel that way when, when he's talking to them. I, I almost can imagine Steve sitting on a rocker with an iced tea or a lemonade <laughs> doing these interviews because that's what it sounds like. And I really like Steve's podcast, and I've gotten to know him since uh, since I became a fan of his. Very cool. I will find that, episode, that, was the, that podcast. I'll listen. And I will also include it in the show notes. Um. So just finally wrapping up, how can people follow you and find you? They can find us in all of the ways you would expect. We're on all the major platforms. We're now on Amazon as of this week. So Amazon podcast picked us up. So we're on Amazon, Pandora, Spotify, Apple, uh, Stitcher, all the, all, all the major platforms. Uh, shapingopinion.com is our website. We're on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Shaping Opinion and then Facebook. And we're even on LinkedIn. I've had people ask me why we're on LinkedIn, but we actually do have a, a separate following on LinkedIn for, for certain types of podcasts we do. So we're on all those places. Very good. I will put links to those too. And I just want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's been really great to talk to you and thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you, Adela. I really had a good time talking to you. Thank you for listening and being a part of the Podcast Brunch Club community. Do you have any thoughts on our discussion this month? Send a message or voice memo to podcast at podcastbrunchclub.com. PBC is a passion project, and we rely on support from our global community to continue bringing people together in person and online. So if you feel like PBC has contributed to your life in any way, please consider becoming a patron or making a one-time donation. Go to podcastbrunchclub.com slash support for more information. If you're interested in becoming an organizational partner, go to podcastbrunchclub.com slash sponsors. A quick thanks to our early partners, Podbean, 
For one free month of podcast hosting, go to podbean.com slash PBC. Podchaser, the IMDb of podcasts. Listen notes, a podcast search engine. Critical Frequency, the podcast network for everyone else. The Venn Media, a weekly newsletter for curious minds. And Lentigua Williams and Company, podcast network, telling stories in the seams of society. Finally, some credits for this episode. Katie DeFiori is our audio editor. Music is from Chad Crouch and Miss Ayalgana, downloaded from Free Music Archive. I'm Adela, founder of Podcast Brunch Club. And as always, thanks and happy listening. <laughs>